Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. This week's guest will be joining me shortly, but first, through the month of January, I'm sharing more 2023 advice and goals from guests who joined me in 2022. Hi, Kristen. This is Debbie Weiss, author of Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. You asked about New Year's resolutions, and I don't really have any. I think New Year's resolutions tend to be really punitive because we give up the things we like in favor of the things we don't. Like, I will eat a lot less chocolate, but I will eat a lot more kale. And I don't really want to eat a lot of kale and give up chocolate. So my resolution is to enjoy life more this year and be less stressed and manage my anxiety and be more grateful. And then from there, hopefully find a measure of inspiration following the publication of my book. This week, I'm speaking with Martina Clark. Martina has lived a fascinating life, taking her to 90 plus countries, seeing her in the room with world leaders, activists, and educators, and now as a writer with her book, My Unexpected Life, an international memoir of two pandemics, HIV and COVID-19. Martina's had several major changes after 35, an age doctors never even expected her to live to see. We needed to be the voice of reason in the room from the perspective of people living with and impacted by HIV. And I did that a lot. So in the end, they actually offered me a job with UNAIDS. I became the first openly HIV positive person to work for UNAIDS. My job was to be there in the room and try and help guide things a little bit from my perspective as a person living with HIV and in consultation with the community of people living with HIV. And so that led to a whole career with the United Nations. Hi, Martina. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm thrilled to have you here. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be with you. (laughs) I ask you if you would read something for the listeners from your website. So if you don't mind, would you kick it off with reading that for us. You bet. My life has led me along many paths. I've been a special events planner, a typist, an au pair, and an ice rink employee. I've danced in ballets, sang in an opera, and sold tap shoes. I've made deli sandwiches, served meals, and cleaned tables. More recently, I worked for and with the United Nations system for more than 20 years on HIV and AIDS. Since 2017, though, I've been focused on teaching, and I count my blessings each and every day for this opportunity to work with these amazing young people. Thank you for doing that better than I could have, (laughs) telling your own story. You've also been in bands. You've been an artist. Who's counting? (laughs) Yeah. Who's counting? Come on the second chapter and tell me about your 50 seventh chapter or whatever. But despite all this, you originally studied, was it international policy? International relations. Mm -hmm. International relations. So how did you come to that initially? Oh, that's a good question. Basically, I got to college and I think if I had felt full empowerment to do whatever I wanted, I probably would have studied writing Mm. and become a journalist and maybe an international journalist, travel writer, something That's where my soul was. But I was told by people older than me who are often referred to as your parents, don't (laughs) do that. It's not a good career. I knew I wanted to travel. So I ended up landing with international relations, mostly because I wanted to have a career that would take me to different countries, not because I was as invested in the politics as I probably should have been at that point, but it ended up serving me well. It seems like international relations, though, is something that parents would go, what the hell is international relations? I don't know, like back in the day. (laughs) Yeah, except that my parents, my parents got married and immediately moved to Spain where they lived for four years and had their first three kids. So they actually did get it. That was one thing. They're like, "Yeah, that sounds cool. Okay, we get that. Very good. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, two of these dreams, something that kind of stemmed from international relations, I assume. But you had a couple things that you were accepted to do and were scuppered fairly early on in life, which was the Peace Corps and language teaching in Prague. Yes. And obviously, you know this, but because of a positive diagnosis with HIV. Exactly. I was accepted to both programs and 
as I read more closely, the fine print said, all we need from you is a negative HIV test, and then you're good to go. We'll do all the interviews and get you on your way. And I had just tested positive and realized that was not going to happen. So I was crushed, I think is a good word. (laughs) Yeah. And on top of what must have been, and I'll ask you a bit more about this, but what must have been such a devastating blow to find out you're HIV positive, but to also have two things that I assume were very difficult to get. It's not like everybody gets accepted to these things. Find out, yay, I got both of them. Yeah. And now because of something else that's what at the time felt like it was going to destroy your life, destroyed two big dreams. Yes. Yeah. I felt at that moment or in that exact moment of reading the letters per se, but in that period of early diagnosis, I felt like my life was just wiped clean and not necessarily in a good way. Here you get a do-over. Just nothing you have done up until this point matters anymore. It's all gone. And, and then I just had to rebuild and eventually came to realize that, of course, it wasn't all gone. I was still that same person. I just also had HIV. But it really felt like I was looking at a blank slate and in a way that, that I couldn't draw upon what I had wanted before and that maybe even what I had done before would no longer be worth anything. So I was really just, everything had to start from scratch all over again. That's a redundant statement. <laughs> what year was this? This was in 1992 and I was 28 years old. And it's worth mentioning that in 1992, we did not have viable treatment yet for HIV. So it was considered a death sentence when you got that diagnosis. Yeah, you were given basically five years. Said five years. Yeah. yeah. And additionally, and I was going to say back then, but I think it's probably still a pretty valid statement that women were not seen as or were not commonly recognized as people that could even get HIV. Exactly. Absolutely. I was thinking about that actually last night, that it was partly there was no treatment. It was partly that I hadn't seen women, but also society looked at you sideways. Wait a minute. That's not supposed to happen. In North America and Western Europe, it was was perceived as a gay man's disease. So there was this other little twist of what did you do to get HIV and how horrible and terrible a person must you be? And all kinds of just strange perceptions, because as you say, I hadn't seen anybody with HIV, but nobody else had either in my circle of friends. We probably all had, we just didn't know that we had. So it was dealing with it as a brand new thing for me, but also trying to navigate it in a world where it was quite an effort to find a community of other women with HIV. Yeah. And you've written such an interesting book, An Unexpected Life. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But I do feel like what I said a moment ago about it not changing as much, not changing as much as I maybe would have expected as I've read, as you've gone through your life, which fortunately has been a lot longer than five years. I kept reading the dates and going, wait, how is this happening in 2000 and 2003 and now? And really... Like I said, we'll get more into the book, but I was fascinated that the things I could recognize as, oh, okay, I could see that happening in 1992. I was still reading about happening in 2003 or what have you. Absolutely. Yeah. No, science, I will say this, science has made extraordinary advances with treatment and all of the things to support people. Society has been very slow to catch up and the stigma is, it's not as palpable and overt as it used to be, but it still exists even today. It's still there. And I think with medication and things that you mentioned, I don't want to say people have forgotten about it, but it's just, I remember when it was the top of news stories, the top Mm -hmm. of everyone's mind all the time. And there's been other pandemics to Mm -hmm. take people's mind off certain things. But even before that, it was like, I don't know. I just feel like it's definitely not spoken about like it was obviously before medication, but even after that. Yeah, agreed. Agreed very much so that the campaigns have slowed down and money has been taken away from those areas of study and and the educational programs that go along with it or prevention programs. And you just don't hear about it very much. I think you heard maybe a tiny bit more last year, meaning 2021. Mm. 
because it was the 40th year that the virus had been discovered, but then it just disappeared again. And yeah, we don't really hear about it, and we definitely don't hear much about women with HIV, despite the fact that globally, women make up more than half of the cases of HIV. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that's just a shocking statistic because yeah. you don't hear about it, even yeah. to this day. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it really does not align with people's perceptions. They either think it's fixed and it's done, or it's not a big deal anymore because if you get HIV, you just take a pill and so what? Who cares? But in reality, it is still very much a vibrant pandemic. People are still getting infected. And during COVID, because all of the support mechanisms around keeping people safe, prevention programs for a variety of populations and settings, they all shut down, of course, because of the pandemic. So cases mm -hmm. started to go up again at least here in the States. And I suspect that's the case probably everywhere. And understandably, because the whole world shut down. But in some places, even in San Francisco, they started diverting money from the HIV work to other things because they thought it was more important. But that resulted in new people, new cases of HIV, people becoming newly diagnosed. So you say that this diagnosis and itching these two other dreams led to this feeling in a bad way of a bank blank slate. But mm -hmm. it also seems like you just maybe weren't in denial, but put all your energy toward becoming an advocate and activist versus facing your own diagnosis. Is that a fair statement? I think it is, partly because physically I was not sick. I had little things, but they were still minor. And I think it was a result of the initial seroconversion, the virus entering my body and then taking over and taking hold which is when you become HIV positive. But that was like getting hit by a storm. But then you write yourself again and you just move on like a really bad flu, right? It can knock you out for a few weeks and then you have lingering effects, but you eventually get over it. My body went through the initial seroconversion and I definitely had probably about a six month period of my body just not being right and nobody could figure out what it was, which is why the doctor suggested the HIV test. He also lovingly added, oh, you're single, so let's do the HIV test. <laughs> so nice yeah. little undercurrent of stigma there. But, but then I didn't need treatment for 17 years, which is very unusual and obviously a wonderful, lucky, fabulous thing that occurred. But that allowed me to sort of dive into the activism. But at the same time, as you say, I didn't wasn't exactly denial. I think it was just that it wasn't physically present in my person. And so I kept waiting for it to happen. And I thought, well, in the meanwhile, I might as well do something else that can keep me one step ahead of this virus in the pandemic so that even if I can't reverse my own status, maybe I can do something that will help somebody else avoid getting infected or feel like they're not alone. So my energy sort of was just placed in a different spot yeah. because I didn't know what else to do. And I like that you kind of were just like, you know, I figured maybe I could do something else. You did a lot. <laughs> it wasn't like you were like, oh, I'm going to set up a lemonade stand and tell a few people <laughs> a few things. There, there are so many names in this book. There are so many countries that you went to in this book. I don't even know how to get into the massive amount of things that you did both with your career and in your personal life and everything else that happened. But Tell us a little bit about where your activism took you. So because I had studied international relations, again, not necessarily my first choice, but it's what I landed on. I ended up being pushed by other women with HIV that I met along the path to get more involved with international work on HIV. That led me to a group called the International Community of Women Living with HIV, and they said, you do happen to have this background, at least in studies and a little bit of my work, where you understand how international organizations work and you happen to speak at least pretty good French, not perfect, but at that time it was pretty good. It's better now. So we've decided that we're going to recommend you be on the board of this new program being created by the United Nations. So it's like a board of directors, basically, except it's a, mm -hmm. a UN organization. And it was the first organization ever in the UN to actually give a seat at the table to a non-governmental entity. So there were five of us, five or six of us, and we represented different regions in the world. 
and my task was to represent North America and all women living with HIV. Basically just all the same thing. Yeah, no, no problem. So they nominated me to the board of directors for UNAIDS, which was created in 95 and started running in 96. And then I think I was, I was a loudmouth on the board and I didn't just say yes to everything. Like I think they might have anticipated we would, but we actually did what we were there to do, which was to be present at the table and call them out on things that were not appropriate or where they were overlooking things or whatever it was. We needed to be the voice of reason in the room from the perspective of people living with and impacted by HIV. And I did that a lot. So in the end, they actually offered me a job with UNAIDS. And I became the first openly HIV positive person to work for UNAIDS, not in the entire UN system by any means, but certainly the first one at UNAIDS, which was a big deal because that program was being set up to be more representative of the community it was trying to serve instead of only having middle-aged white doctors from the North, right? which had been the case preceding it with the Global Program on AIDS, which was part of the World Health Organization. So it was this new beast. And I was there to represent people with living with HIV, as well as having my job, which was an NGO liaison. But I felt like that was my primary job, despite my title. My job was to be there in the room saying, okay, this is all great, but we're not doing this, or we should not be doing that, and try and help guide things a little bit from my perspective as a person living with HIV and in consultation with the community of people living with HIV. And so that led most unexpectedly, hence the title, My Unexpected Life, (laughs) that led to a whole career with the United Nations. And I ended up working with the United Nations for a little more than 20 years in various capacities and different organizations, which I could never have anticipated, particularly after I tested positive for HIV. Yeah. Somebody says to you, look, you're looking at about five years. And I can't imagine that sometimes you saw beyond what might happen the next week, but usually it was another country or something that you'd be traveling to. Yeah. And it turned out, again, I would still much rather have not had a life with HIV because it has presented issues for me in my life. And as a selfish person, I would have been happy to avoid that. However, I would also be a liar if I said I didn't have an extraordinary life that unfolded because I have HIV Mm -hmm. and because I was trusted and put into this position with UNAIDS that led to all sorts of other things and almost a decade with UNICEF. And then I worked with peacekeeping and as a consultant along the way with other organizations. And I have traveled so much and seen such extraordinary parts of human existence, I think, because I wasn't traveling just on a vacation or a tour or something. I was going to places and working with our staff for the United Nations in country and getting to have a little sense of what their life is like on a daily basis. That is an amazing gift. And that part I would not want to take back. All that. (laughs) So in between UNAIDS and going to work for UNICEF, I know there was, there were one of the bands that I mentioned, you worked as, shall I say you worked as an artist? And then also went through what sounded like was going to be this whirlwind romance, was for a minute, and then turned into a very, I was going to say a very bad marriage. Yes, a very bad marriage, a very unappealing marriage. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of time in between? Sure. And again, time is weird because if I look back, it was a relatively short amount of time between Mm -hmm. UNAIDS and UNICEF, if you look at a calendar. However, in my life, it felt like a gazillion years. But basically, I left left UNAIDS and I did indeed, I was an apprentice, technically, with, I called it the lamp store. It wasn't really exactly the lamp store, but they basically, they made sculptures out of reclaimed items and turned them into lamps. So I learned how to do that. I learned how to wire for electricity. I learned how to make the metal do the different things I wanted. And then we created these little sculptures, basically, yeah, just creative artistic sculptures out of metal, recycled, reclaimed things that were illuminated. And this was in Switzerland. And I also sang in a band. And I had started singing before I left UNAIDS, but I 
took it on a little bit more seriously. And during that time, when I was in this wonderful period of artistic growth, I was also still in a period of, I really want a boyfriend because nobody loves me and I'm broken and I'm dirty. So I was struggling with this sort of personal thing. And when I look back on it now, this was in 1998, 1999. So that's six years after diagnosis. And that's Mm -hmm. where I think it becomes apparent that, yes, I haven't exactly been in denial, but I also haven't processed my own diagnosis. I haven't really dealt with all of the emotional baggage that comes with something so traumatic. And you're past where they kind of told you you would be. So it's like... Exactly. I've suddenly, I've passed this five-year point and I'm like, hey, I'm still alive. Yeah. Maybe I need to think about this a little bit. Maybe I shouldn't have cashed out my pension. I don't know. But, <laughs> but it was still, yeah, I was still processing all of this. And I did a lot of it through art and music. And at that period, I met a friend of a friend from the band who just very attractive Belgian guy. And we immediately clicked. And I indeed thought that I had found my prince. And it turned out he was Bluebeard. And Mm. in the end, to his defense, he had a lot of mental health issues that had been undiagnosed up until that point. And eventually he did find out and he let me know. But our marriage was awful. It was abusive, verbally, emotionally. We had never had sex in all the years that we were married. And about six months into our marriage, we became foster parents for a troubled teen who was not through the regular foster child program system. It was by chance this child needed to be placed. And she ended up with us. She and I have developed an extraordinary relationship. And so that part of it was great. And we're still in very close contact on a, not every day, but we, through social media in particular, we're in touch constantly. But the marriage ended and it took me a long time to recover from that because I thought that I was the only problem in the marriage. I just assumed that we didn't have sex because I had HIV and that I really was the problem. Um, after he actually called me up and gave me a great gift and said that he'd been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And he said, I, it doesn't excuse any of my bad behavior, but maybe it will explain it. And that he was now in treatment and in therapy and he was getting help and trying to get his life together. And I wish him all great successes. I have no desire to hang out with him anymore ever again, but I think that's fair. (laughs) Yeah, we tried it. It didn't work, but it uh, it was really kind that he did that and afforded me the knowledge that while I was certainly a part of that relationship and I didn't do everything right either by any means, I wasn't the only problem. And it did explain a lot of things. And then I learned more about what he was dealing with. And I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense now. But but not having that knowledge going into it because he just didn't know. And my being vulnerable because I was still processing my own emotions, it was a pretty bad mix. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. And I won't go into sort of how it came to be that you were so vulnerable, put it that way, because I think it's such a fascinating part of your life in the book. But I do think it's amazing to see this woman traveling the world, speaking up, giving it to world leaders and shocking people who were very bullheaded or closed-minded about people living with HIV and AIDS, and yet to see you crumble in this, like I said, very bad situation, marriage was really fascinating. And then to see you come back out of it and come back into your own with your UNICEF job, recognizable in certain ways that we can all be strong women, but have these emotional vulnerabilities that lead us into a place that's just really difficult to get out of. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I use this phrase, I desperately wanted to be loved. And the desperation was the part that got me into trouble. I wasn't choosing a partner that would be a good partner for my life. I didn't think all of that through. I got into it too quickly. There are a million things that in retrospect, what was I thinking? But I was vulnerable and I did very much want to be loved. And here along came this handsome guy who's like, I choose you. I love you. I want to be your husband. And it was all the things I wanted to hear, but I didn't think them through. And yeah, yeah, it was quite a time. But as you were coming out of that time was also the UNICEF job offer. And mm-hmm. you got you moved to New York City, got very busy and started getting worn down. 
Yeah. And you did allude to the fact that it was 17 years or roughly 17 years before you needed treatment. But can you tell me a little bit about how that all came to be? <laughs> yeah, that was in 2008. And basically by that point, I was traveling about 150 days a year internationally and not to the fanciest hotel in Cancun. <laughs> it's going to all sorts of places where the travel is difficult or can be difficult. And regardless, even of the easy places, the work was difficult because I was, at that point, I was a trainer for UNICEF. We were creating an HIV in the workplace program to make sure that all UN, initially UNICEF on my behalf, but then the whole UN system to make sure that all of our personnel were trained on HIV for themselves, but also so that they would perform better in jobs related to anything related to HIV, even if they were like in the accounting office and just had to process checks for somebody who hired a person with HIV for a program. All of that was really to try and break down the stigma and make sure that our own staff understood how to take care of themselves and also how to educate their kids or other people they cared about about HIV. This was sort of what I was alluding to before, that some of these people that you're working with, not just the person in the accounting office writing the checks, but some of the people that really were front and center were still saying things like, oh, we are from this country. We don't have to worry about that. Or I don't, I'm don't. i not the type of person. I don't know. This is again where I was going, wait a minute, this was 2003. This was 2008. Yeah. yeah. So what I learned was that the UN personnel, I would say this very broadly. It's a sweeping statement, so not poked at any individual. But in general, the UN tends to attract conservative people, not necessarily conservative in a political sense that they don't want good for others. They just want to hold all their money for themselves, not that kind of conservative, but in the sense that they have, they're always the good students. They did everything they were supposed to do in life. They have not veered off a path mm. to do anything wild. And so for them, talking about HIV, talking about sex in their own personal lives is really uncomfortable. And they often have this perception that it was only bad people that get HIV. And that kind of took me a little bit by surprise, if I'm mm -hmm. honest, because my initial interactions with people at UNAIDS, which was a very different kind of organization, the individuals were really, these are people, they would give their life to just make the world a little bit better for everybody else. Whereas in the bigger programs and in the country offices, people are, they're really thinking about, I'm doing this job, yes, because I believe in it, but also because it's a really good, solid job for my family and my extended family. Mm. The salary, the benefits, the fact that I will make enough that I can help all of these other people, those are factors that go into it in a way that I hadn't really contemplated because I was in my work as for the United Nations. I was a single woman. I wasn't thinking about how I was supporting other people in my own life, or at least that was not first and foremost in my mind. If you like what you're listening to, head over to coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com and support the podcast by buying me a coffee or lots of them. Thank you as always so much for your support. So when I got to country offices, it was really hard because then I would have these conversations and I also was surprised by the comments that people made. And it took a lot out of me. Physically, the travel was hard, but emotionally, there were days when I would just, I wouldn't even go to dinner. I would just go up to my room and curl into a fetal position and cry and just go to sleep early and feel like, why am I doing this? Why am I exposing myself? Why am I opening up these wounds? every single day in my job. What kind of brain do I have that thinks that's a good idea? And yet there would inevitably be somebody who would come back afterwards and say, thank you so much for this. I learned so much and I am now I'm going to go get tested or mm -hmm. I know now how to help somebody else or something, something that would be like, okay, that's why I'm doing this. It's all worth it. This is my goal. Was it if even one person hears something that helps them either avoid getting HIV because they now understand how to protect themselves or help somebody to just live a better life because they know they're not alone and they know that there is this possibility of a full life with HIV, then it's all worth it. That's why I'm doing it. And I feel like your mental 
challenges around it also came as you were physically deteriorating. So mm-hmm. it was that things were getting so much harder. And I did interrupt you to make that statement about the people that you were working with. But can you go into continue with what you were saying about <laughs> finally needing treatment? Yeah. So basically, I was physically, I was worn down because I was traveling constantly and I wasn't taking good care of myself. And so my body was just like, you really need a break. And the body and the brain worked together. My physical health started to deteriorate. And probably at some point I would have needed treatment anyway. But had I been taking longer breaks before I got to that point, maybe I would have avoided it. I don't know. I will never Mm -hmm. know. But basically what happened was that over the course of 2008, my body just was falling apart. I was losing tons of weight. I was just weak. I was having starting to have a hard time walking because everything was achy. My handwriting became terrible because I was shaky. And by the time I finally got to a doctor, he said, or I asked him, I said, do you think I could get some time off from work? And he was just like, wait, you've been working through all of this? You're really sick. Do you understand that? And I said, nah, just a couple of weeks. He said, let's start with three months. And that also set an alarm bell off in my head to think, oh, okay, if this doctor, a specialist thinks that I need to start with three months off from work, this is serious. This is not This is not something I'm going to get over on my own. But at that point, because my body was in such chaos, my brain was also not really functioning the way that it should. And that was part of why it was hard for me to get the treatment I needed because I was thinking, I've never been this sick. I just need a little break and I'll be okay. Even though I knew the science and I understood what was happening on some level, I wasn't connecting those pieces. It was only after I actually took that break or during that break, I should say, that I was able to replenish my reserves enough to start to think more clearly and think, okay, this is not going to end well if I don't start treatment. And because I hadn't needed treatment for so long, it was like being diagnosed all over again. It was really awful and also not what I expected because my friends are all treatment activists and treatment is great. Everybody should have access to it. And I'm like, but I don't want it. That means I'm sick. Like, yeah, that means you're sick, but you have access to it so you can stop being sick. <laughs> right. Um, but it was really hard to connect those pieces in my brain. But eventually I did and hit all the wood I can find. I started treatment in the end of 2008 and I responded well, in part because I hadn't been on treatment before. So I was what we call treatment naive mm-hmm. and my body was able to respond without many side effects and took a couple of switches here and there to get the right combination for me. But I did really well. And I bounced back within six months. I was back basically to my old self, which is extraordinary when I think about how sick I was. It was a challenge to to leave my house and take the subway to go to see the doctor was a major ordeal for me. Whereas now it's not going to the doctor. Maybe it's a long trip or whatever. I think about riding the subway for other reasons. (laughs) But physically, it is not an issue. At that point, it was really a challenge. It was really a struggle. And I don't ever want to be there again. I am grateful that the treatments exist. And along with my physical health, my mental health came back much more quickly than I anticipated. And I was back to work. And that's when I actually started working on the book. I was working still full time. So I didn't have, initially, I didn't have a lot of time to devote to it, but I started taking classes here and there. And it was during that period where I was really sick that I, like on my to-do list was to update my will. And I didn't do it because I was afraid if I updated my will, then I would let myself die instead of starting treatment. I think that's such an interesting thing because I do have to say, even for myself, I was talking to somebody it's really hard being a U.S. person. I'm sure you know this, a U.S. person living in the U.K. with tax mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. and in any kind of pension or any kind of. So I was talking to somebody the other day and they just said, you need a will. And I was like, there is a weird superstition somewhere that says, oh, if I work on a will, if I do my will, it's like saying I'm going to die. Well, guess what? I am going to die someday. <laughs> exactly. And we should all have a will. I, Yeah. And I know when my dad died, he didn't have a lot of money, but he had a lot of possessions. Mm -hmm. 
he was a collector of things and a hoarder, maybe he could go there. But he didn't have a will. And we all were like, what the hell do we do now? We don't even know what he has, let alone who yeah. he wants things to go to. And anyway, I digress, but it, I can see what you mean about the sort of superstition in your mind. Yeah. Especially when you were to the point that you were like, do I even want to do this treatment? Right. If you write a will, then that's giving up somehow in your mind. Right. Bring myself permission because all of my affairs would have been in order. So, uh, say this to myself now. I'm like, ah, what was I thinking? Some point during that uh, struggling, I also thought about story and that I own this little teeny piece of the history of the AIDS pandemic that I felt was important to tell. And I won't say that the writing is what kept me motivated to live. There were many, many things, but it was something that I felt like I need to get this, this story down. I need to write it. If for no other reason than for my nibblings, my nieces and nephews, so that they, they will be able to read the story of what Aunt Martina did. Because nobody else can tell my story. I'm the only one because it's my story that motivated me to kind of start to shift my life again towards more creative things and allow time for my writing and other things that, that fed my soul not just physically kept me healthy, but kept my soul healthy because I was working so much. That's all I did. And mm -hmm. again, when you travel that much, it's not like you're missing something that is your life. You just, that's what you do. You travel all the time. And in the UN, everybody else travels all the time as well. So it's easy to have a community of friends and whoever is in town and wants to go to drinks that day, that's who shows up, right? It's a different sort of socialization, but it exists. I didn't suffer or anything because I was always gone from my life. That was my life. And it was a wonderful, extraordinary life, but it was not uh, sustainable, to use a good UN word, <laughs> and something that I could keep up physically or emotionally. And I started to realize again, as I had in Geneva, UNAIDS, that I still had to feed this part of me that, that likes to create things make new stories, tell stories, sing songs, does harmonies, whatever. That's an important part of who I am as a person. Started to carve out more time for that after um, so sick. It's a really good thing. And it's led me to all these other things that I'm doing now. I mentioned at the beginning, you've had 50,000 chapters. I think I said 56, 57, something like that. <laughs> but one of the things that is another second chapter story is that you have gone on to now have an MFA. MFA, is that right? MFA. Master uh -huh. of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. After leaving your job, a reggae band. So tell me what led you to leave after 20 years plus at the UN and start all these other things? Basically, uh, because I had that time when I was sick, I uh, reflected and thought, need to get on with my life. Done, done good. I have tried to put better things into the world through my work, and I am allowed this on myself. And if I don't leave the UN, I will never do that because the UN is, it's an all-consuming world. It's like it takes up every part of your being all of your friends, all of your relationships, all of your jobs, all of everything is just, it's all focused in this little bubble. And so I decided that it was time for me to go away. I also felt like the work that I had been doing up and running, I measure something in terms of a job. If you can step away and it keeps going, you and your job right need me anymore. It was set up, somebody else could step in and take over. Basically, I motion that that happened. And indeed, I left. I had actually started singing back up with a reggae band while I was still with UNICEF. <laughs> but once I left UNICEF, I tried to start my own band. And as one does, obviously, career choice, UN to reggae band. <laughs> Clearly. Transition. Uh, and a band, you know, it actually sort of exists in different formations, but the initial shape of it lasts that long, about a year. But it got me back into my creative self. And then uh, more and more classes on writing, typically on memoir, how to shape a story, because that's to me, that's the hardest part. Like you can write all the stories down, but how do you shape it into a book length script that actually holds together and makes sense? That's That was mm -hmm. the trickiest part. And then eventually I thought, I'm going to do an MFA. I love writing. I've always loved writing. I hope that I'm a decent writer. 
wanted to give myself the gift of being in community with other writers. So I did an MFA program. I started at 50. I even spent a semester living in the dorms. Oh, (laughs) because part of my program was um, in a different part of New York and just commuting for daily classes was not a reasonable thing to do. So I just lived in the dorms in my 50s. I love that though. You know what? Be part of the experience. If you're going to go back to school, it was great because in, in undergrad, I actually didn't live in the dorms. I was in an urban setting and I worked full time and lived in an apartment with roommates mm-hmm. and stuff. So it was my first dorm experience. I don't know how my dorm mates liked it, middle-aged lady. But for me, it was wonderful. And it was just a gift to myself to do the MFA. I did not need the MFA to write the book, but I loved being in community with other writers, learning the writer's life. And having extraordinary teachers, which I don't actually love New York. I'm a Californian through and through. (laughs) But one thing you can find in New York is a lot of good writers. And so they become the professors in the local schools, right? So I got to study with some extraordinary people. And I wrote my thesis. And then I spent a summer with my sisters and my nibblings, my nieces. I would write something and send it to them and check in every week. And they were giving me feedback. And the risk of that was that they would say, oh, we love this. This is great because they love me. But in fact, they turned out they were excellent readers. And they said, you've already said this or you've skipped a part. Remember what that happened or I think you should include this because it doesn't make sense here. They were mm. excellent. Excellent. They were basically my thesis advisors. That's the manuscript that became my book. And it's gone through a few more versions and editing since then. But it allowed me to to make a real foothold into the life that I had sort of wanted to have as a creative person, as a writer. And through that, that led me also to teaching, which has been so wonderful. I absolutely love, love, love teaching. And specifically, I teach college classes to high school kids who are doing college Mm -hmm. classes early. And I feel so blessed to get to work with them because give me hope for the future. These bleak times, that means a lot. And I feel like I, I can give back. So it's still sort of activism covertly through teaching by helping them shape their voices. I did think hearing you say that, that you, you were teaching anyway through yeah. your activism. You were standing yeah. up in front of people. You were educating about yeah. living with HIV, how to use a condom. So it's coming back, but getting to do it through a new creative yeah. format, which I think we come back to what we love, but it seems like what you kind of wanted to do very early on and never got to do, combined with what you did your whole life to make this sort of perfect new brew. Exactly. Exactly. That's really what it is. And and in some ways, it's even better than the work. It's not better. It's different than the work at the UN, because rather than just teaching them about HIV, I'm teaching them to find their own voice so that they can... Mm-hmm be loud on the page as public speakers, as readers, as whatever participants in life, activists themselves, perhaps one day, they can amplify that voice on whatever it is they need to talk about, not what I want them to talk about, what they need to talk about. And that gives me so much joy. You know, I sleep well at night, as they say, in terms of my work. I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm again, I'm able to give back and I see these great young minds going, oh, that makes sense. I'm going to write about this. In my English 101 class, which is a class that a lot of people don't want to teach because they think it's really boring because it's composition and well, but I actually love it. And I let my kids choose their topics. And for example, last summer, one of my students wrote about girls in skateboarding because she loves to skateboard. Mm. And like, of course you can write a paper about that. Sure, let's do some research. And she was still able to tie it back to human rights and a global level, a national level, and a local level. And I had them tie it into literature. So she was able to find a a girl skateboarder who is also a poet and talk about some of her poetry. And it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And so I'm just sort of giving them the tools that I have acquired over the years and saying, here, these are some tools that might be helpful for you. This is how you use them. Go at it. See what you do. I love when it comes together. I don't, the whole reason I do this podcast is obviously people start someplace, they end someplace. There's so much in between. But when 
And I don't think you're even close to, you probably have 10 more careers by the time it's all said and done. But I love when you find something that it's, I didn't even expect to be doing this. Yeah. And here I am and I'm loving it. And to be fair, I we've not even said the entire name of your book. I did say before we started that I was riveted. So I want to make sure that <laughs> even though people have heard touches of your story, they get the chance to read it. My Unexpected Life, an International Memoir of Two Pandemics, HIV and COVID-19. Yes. So we haven't talked about how the two pandemics have come together in your life or your mind. How did COVID kind of impact after you'd had the large portion of your life living with HIV? So it, I would say in two ways, um, as an observer and as a participant. As an observer, I saw that, for example, the vaccines that we have now, we were able to bring them to market so quickly because of research that had been done in hopes of a vaccine for HIV. Science for all of those decades of HIV is actually very relevant to the science in our response to COVID. That is one thing. Just observing this as COVID rolled out, and again, I'm living in New York City, which was the hardest hit spot in the country in the USA when COVID hit. And I don't know if we mentioned that you were living in San Francisco when you had your HIV diagnosis. So yeah, both times just... Exactly. So wrong place at the wrong time. I don't know. Yeah, I was living on Castro Street in one of the many thriving, fabulous gay neighborhoods of San Francisco in the 80s. And then I was here in New York City as COVID hit. As an observer, I saw these similarities. And then I also mm -hmm. saw some differences. For example, the stigma attached to COVID is it, there is some stigma, but it's nothing like what happened with HIV, because of course, everybody in the world shut down with COVID, whereas HIV was perceived to be in these small populations. So some of these similarities and differences, observing this at the same time that my manuscript was picked up for publication, and when I was working with the final editor, you know, we could also tie in the COVID pandemic, because I think both professionally and personally, I have a lot of observations that would make this a really interesting to weave throughout. And of course, it makes it timely. Also, I am a virus overachiever because I also had COVID <laughs> early on, not early adapter, in March, late March, early April of 2020. And so mm -hmm. I was also able to tap into what this was like physically. And in my case, uh, the HIV, I had this huge emotional blow of the diagnosis, but then I didn't really get sick. And with COVID, I thought I'm doing everything right. I'm, you know, I'm not going to get this thing. I got it. And three years on, I am still dealing with it. So physically, it has actually done more damage to my body in a short period of time than HIV did. Wow. Is there any correlation between the two or is it just unlucky? Because I feel like COVID, I've had it several times, unfortunately, and it's hit me very hard. But I know other people that are like, oh, yeah, I just... That is the, the million dollar question. And I don't know. I don't know if I initially got COVID despite my best efforts because I have HIV and I therefore mm -hmm. have a compromised immune system or... If I was going to get COVID anyway, and I didn't get a worse case because I take the medications I take for HIV, which are right. not the same, but sort of in a similar, they're like cousins to uh, medications that they would give you if you have COVID. Basically, they want to keep your fighter T cells up so that you have a big right. army of fighting machine inside your blood system. What I do know is, uh, it's not a spoiler alert because I don't think this is actually even in the book, but I had a really bad case of shingles in 2003. And one could say that that's because I have HIV. I was more likely to contract that, have a worse case because I had HIV. And with COVID, it seems to have reactivated that nerve damage. Ooh. And it's not as bad. <laughs> Breathe out again. It's not as bad as it was in, uh, in 2003, but I still, there's no other explanation. I, I call it my gremlin. I've mm -hmm. named him mm -hmm. Ivan. He's Ivan, my gremlin. It's this little mass that's not actually, nobody can see it or feel it except for me. And so it must be nerve damage. And then also I've had a headache for about three years now and nobody can figure that out either. And I had damage to my left eye. So everything is on the left side and I guess that's because I'm a liberal, so I lean left. But <laughs> I, I've actually had 
two surgeries now on my eye and it's still, it's basically permanently damaged because I developed from the inflammation of COVID, I developed a membrane on the back of my eye that had to be removed. And I had a second surgery and I'm like, but my eyes are still not working. And the doctor's like, they're never going to work together quite the way they're supposed to. And so the left eye sees things a little bit, looking at a ransom note, how they paste the letters unevenly. Wow. And it's almost twice the size of what I see with my right eye. And yesterday I was on the subway and I happened to be looking at a sign where a pole was in between. And I realized that even if with both eyes, I literally see the right side is smaller and the left side is bigger. So I am not going to be doing any mountain climbing anytime soon. (laughs) My depth perception is gone. The big scheme of the universe, I can still see, I can still function, Mm -hmm. but it's uh, a big deal for me, you know? Yeah. Especially I can't really read comfortably. I can read, but not for long periods of time. So like I can do enough reading to do my work, but I use a big screen so I can make things big. Writer and a reader, that hurts my heart. But it has lent me to, led me to the path of audiobooks, which I absolutely love. And I see now as an art form unto themselves. And now I'm a, I absolutely love audiobooks. And I used to think I was cheating if I listened to an audiobook. And now I realize, no, a good audiobook is its own thing. We heard how beautifully you read <laughs> from your website at the beginning. And I know that you narrate that you, has it just been released? The it, audiobook? It was just of released. Your book? Yeah. On January 3rd. Hearing you tell your own story, I can imagine is a fascinating way to hear it because yeah. Yeah. who better to tell you? Like I said, you obviously read the beginning bit beautifully. <laughs> Either way, whether people want to read it or listen to it, I would recommend it. Her life has been so fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. The only other thing I really want to ask you is, of course, did you bring a quote for me today? I did. I have a quote that I actually, um, in the beginning of my book, and it is, if you think you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night with a mosquito. And that is a quote from the 14th Dalai Lama. And I love it because it reminds me that I can't change the world. I can't do it. I'm just one person. You know, what does it make? It does ma- matter. Everybody can do something, no matter how small, to make their world a better place for themselves and for others. And again, if we think about the mosquito, it's easy to remember. Yes, a little tiny thing can make a big difference. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And I have to say, that's a really interesting reminder to me, having read your book, the whole time I'm thinking just, wow, how will I ever make this kind of an impact? But sometimes the impact is, I don't know, it's sometimes different than you expect it to be, I guess, is what I should say. Absolutely. And I think, again, yeah, just don't diminish the fact that even the little tiny things that you can do can all do something, even if it's smiling at somebody on the street, just connecting and smiling. Sometimes that's enough. You know, it can make somebody feel like, oh, somebody noticed that I exist. That can be a little thing that makes their day better. So it all counts. It's all good. And even if we don't recognize the response, just doing lots of little good things makes the world better. Your unexpected life has certainly made the world better. And the book is so interesting. Everyone read this book. You will learn so much and you'll be really inspired. Thank you so much, Martina, for joining me. I've had such a lovely time getting to chat with you. Thank you for having me. Really, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.